welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone else suffering from a bit of post-event hangover. It is time for your 46th Weird Dose of X. I am Jason, and here to get the podcasting equivalent of some strong black coffee into us is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, doing great. So, yeah, we had the, the giant event that finished up last week that we've been working on it for so long, and I think... You know, it's like after Christmas Day is finished, right? You kind of feel almost a little let down before you kind of gather your strength to move move forward. So I'm not super crazy about this week's books. I think you might have some more positive things to say. So we'll see where we wind up in the end. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm definitely more positive from what we have discussed before hitting the record button. Okay, you can be the purveyor of positivity this week. That will be your <laughs> official role. Uh, today, Great. we will be talking about the free comic book day, Uncanny Avengers, number one. We'll be talking about the first of the Before the Fall one-shots. That'll be Sons of X, number one. And we'll be talking about Kieran Gillen's own Immortal X-Men, number 11. But first, a mutant uh, amuse-bouche, uh, in which Ruben is going to tell us everything that we need to know as X-Fans about the Invincible Iron Man number five. Okay, now I'll, I'll give the, uh, the stats here and then I'll hand it over to Ruben. This is the autobiography of Tony Stark conclusion written by our friend Jerry Duggan, art by Juan Frigeri, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna. Over to you, Ruben. Yeah, so this is just a continuation of the storyline that we've had where Fei Long has basically taken over Stark Industries and uh, has decided that Tony Stark is his rival he's going to destroy for being part of the X-Men who uh, I guess at one point had the option to control Mars and abandon that. I think it was like actually the Avengers who had control before the uh, mutants got it, I think. Anyway, yeah, he has some kind of grudge against against Tony and everybody else. Yeah, so Tony meets up with Emma and they have a conversation saying like, hey, this Phelan guy is messing with me. And he, just so you know, he said that, you know, Orcus has already solved the mutant problem. So kind of giving her a heads up that this is a you know bigger threat than they might think. And uh, Emma seems to kind of flippantly dismiss it, saying, you know, we've heard that a million times and look where we're standing. So that sucks. <laughs> they don't take the warning seriously. Uh, and then we get to kind of the, I guess, the bigger plot points, which is Baylong kind of shows up, fires a bunch of people at Stark Industries, gets somebody to give them a bunch of records. Um, and one of those records is a list of um, assets that Howard Stark had contributed to the company. And he finds some paintings um, that were gifted to Tony, but apparently Tony never looked at them. And they're stored in this research and development facility, which, for whatever reason, Fei Long thinks that's interesting. So he goes to the facility, grabs the paintings, tears into them, finds this like secret letter from Howard to Tony saying, like, hey, you know, Stark Industries is a nice inheritance, but here's the real inheritance. I've found the secret to some mysterious metal, and here's some information on how to get it, and it's going to change everything, quote-unquote. So they don't name the metal, but it appears... I mean, my speculation is that it's the Mysterium, you know, the stuff that uh, in X-Men read. Or I guess maybe it was Sword. In Sword, where they the mutants went out and found it. And Yeah, that's where it was the first time. They, they kind of made a big deal about it, and then it sort of kind of dropped out of... I, they make reference to it every once in a while, but it, it was seemed to be set up to be a much bigger deal than it turned out to be, at least since then. So, hey, may, maybe it's coming back in a big way. So, um, Phelan gets that information, and then, because he's trying to screw with Tony, decides that he's going to destroy 
you know, all the messages from his father to Tony just to be a dick about it. And I don't entirely remember how this exactly happens, but Tony or Tony also gets kind of the idea of like, hey, I need to go to this research facility. Shows up in Iron Man suit, breaks in, starts breaks investigating. Breaks in awful easy. He kind of just walks in, which I, mean, I guess in retrospect, it was Fei Long wanted him to walk in. So, okay. So he goes in, he kind of looks around and uh, has this sort of shocking discovery of, oh my gosh, Fei Long has repurposed Stark Industries to uh, create Sentinels, but have them look like Iron Man Sentinels. And then Fei Long shows up, says, hey, you broke into the facility, you know, beats the crap out of him, um, lets him escape and basically is like, hey, you've got 24 hours and then I want my Iron Man suit because that's also part of the business that I acquired. And I guess Tony realizes he can't fight a giant mecha Iron Man. And that's kind of where the Iron Man cliffhanger ends. Yeah, so the the big thing here, at least immediately the big thing, are those Iron Man Sentinels, which it, they look like giant Hulkbuster armor, but with you know robot circuitry inside and instead yep. of Tony Stark. So we'll be seeing those a bit, and yeah, maybe Mysterium coming back. That could be interesting. But it sure looks like Jerry Duggan's continuing to tie in the whole mutant story with the the wider Marvel world, which which could be pretty cool. Yep. You yeah, want to give it a a, a rating? A rating? Uh, just a seven. I, I find it. Perfectly interesting. I don't think it's exceptional. I, I do think the um, characterization of Fei Long, they're doing a good job of turning him into a character that I hate. I mean, I was like, dude, why'd sure. you have to destroy the letters from the guy's dad? Yeah, there's a bit like, does he it. say that he has like an eidetic memory or something? Yes, so he, yes, he knows all the con- contents perfectly, but Tony will never get them. Yes, exactly. Just to be a total dick. I don't or know if I totally. Maybe to hold it over his head and say, like, hey, I'll tell you, you know transcribe it to you if you do x y z right who knows how he's gonna use it but regardless i was like what a dick move <laughs> i don't know that i totally buy that tony never saw that he, uh his dad left these secret film canister messages to him yes all the, all the daddy issues that tony's gone through you'd think he'd have had he'd have gone over every last piece of anything that his father left him but every every store needs a MacGuffin. yes you would have thought that he would have been like hey these paintings are here and they go and be like what the hell these are stupid right every and, time they move they go clunk 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 what's that about it's a painting yeah yeah exactly so i'm a little suspect on that but regardless it yes Fei long is screwing with tony and yes now we have more impressive sentinels which are i always laugh about sentinels because they have extremely variable power ratings anyways right like sometimes they're unstoppable and the biggest threat to the mutants and other times you could fight 50 of them and it's no yeah, big they're, deal. They're just as strong as the writer needs them to be for that issue. Yeah. So the fact that they're red and gold does not <laughs> make me yeah. think they're even they, more fierce. they got a paint job and uh, whatever <laughs> they call the repulsor beams that Tony shoots. Yes. Okay. So that was Iron Man. Sticking with uh, Jerry Duggan, we're next going to talk about the free comic day book. So this past weekend was free comic book day. If you didn't get out there. Your shop may still have some of those issues. And we'll be talking about Uncanny Avengers number one, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Javier Garron, colors by Maury Hollowell, letters by Travis Lanham. And now the cover of this shows Captain Krakoa, who, hey, there's a, a blast for the past. We haven't seen him since Cyclops, you know, gave up the secret of uh, Mutant Resurrection. Also on the cover, we have what I guess is the rest of the Uncanny Avengers team, which is Captain America, Rogue, Deadpool, Quicksilver, Psylocke, and Penance. That is a a, a ragtag bunch of characters. I, that's kind of crazy. Now, throughout the course of this book, we will see or at least see references to four of those characters, plus Captain Krakoa. 
Uh, Quicksilver, Psylocke, and Penance, they'll have to wait until the real number one, I guess. But they are on the cover. It's an interesting team, but I always wonder, anytime you've got Deadpool, like, why would you invite him onto your team? Yeah, Especially with for the- in, in-universe reasons and also out-of-universe reasons, he can kind of take over a book really easy. Yes. And if the idea, you know, it's not really discussed in this issue, you know, what this team is and what their purpose is, but in the sort of blurbs advertising it in the issue, they're like, oh, this is a team set up to, you know, help humans and mutants work together better from a PR perspective. I'm like, I would not put the wisecracking, <laughs> like, sociopath, like, ninja on the team if that's really your objective. A little bit of a loose cannon, for sure. Now, this story is set in the future relative to our present timeline. In fact, it's set during the next Hellfire Gala. Now, the Hellfire Gala 2023 one-shot is published at the end of July, so that's about 11 weeks from now, real world's time. While the mutants are busy partying it up, we see someone invading their Central Park treehouse. He's in the shadows, so we don't get a great look at him, and his identity looks to be like the initial main mystery of the series, so we're not going to find out here who he is, and maybe not even at the beginning of the actual uh, series. I'm not sure how long this mystery is going to go. But he has a pointy chin, he has a flat top haircut, making his profile look kind of like a rectangle. Uh, His hair seems to be gray, the lighting's bad, so maybe, maybe not. And his brow is wrinkled, making him look, if not old, old, then at least not young. He wears a white jacket, white pants, and white gloves, and a red watch. And I'm, I'm sure at the end of this, uh, Ruben, I'll speculate later as to who this, this might be. For now, he's just a guy working for or with Orcus, and they seem to have given him some kind of tech that lets him fly up into the treehouse, where there appears to be no security countermeasures. There's one glowy red light that I think is the silent alarm, but that is it. You, you think you're, you fly into X-Men's house, you get zapped by something, but apparently not. I, I don't think it would be this easy to break in, but okay. Yeah, it, this is, you know, basically an advertisement for the upcoming book, so they, they can't waste a whole lot of time. I'm, I'm okay with that. Now, Destiny, back at the party, can tell that something's up. Kind of a shame she didn't make that prediction earlier. Uh, she and Mystique do a runner through a gate and out of this book to parts unknown, pausing only to remark that, hey, Rogue has just skedaddled too, and that'll be relevant later. Back in the treehouse, our mystery invader takes a good long look at the Captain Krakoa suit. I don't know why that's even still around. I mean, is that it? Why would you? I mean, it looks like uh, in some of those Batman movies where he has the suits kind of in glass cases. Yeah. And I I think you just get rid of that thing. Oh, well. Uh, The invader takes out a giant needle filled with red fluid. Try that again. The invader takes out a giant needle filled with red fluid and conveniently bearing a great big Orcus logo, so we know just who he works for, and he jabs it into the bit of Krakoan floor surrounding the Captain Krakoa suit. At this point, Cyclops shows up pretty mad, so I guess that was a silent alarm a couple pages back. They fight, and the invader holds his own pretty well against the Krakoan Captain Commander Emeritus. Yeah, and I want to jump in here. I think something really weird here is that he shows up in his 90s Cyclops uniform. So oh, I don't even that makes that. me wonder, like, what the hell is this? There must be something that happens between, you know, today and Hellfire Gala. Because certainly he didn't go to the gala in this uniform. That doesn't <laughs> that seem like bizarre. Uh, that would be his, his fancy dress outfit. Hmm. Good point. But maybe this is part of the whole schism between Gene and him. And maybe he's going back to basics. <laughs> he's going back to wear the, the T-shirt that, that uh, his girlfriend wouldn't let him wear because it was too worn yep. out. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Uh, <laughs> so now in a, what I think is meant to be a meaningful bit of dialogue, Scott asked the guy, 
who are you? And then Vader answers, I'm just a man. Now, Scott should have gotten a pretty good look at the guy. I mean, we don't, but Scott should have. So maybe Scott not recognizing him is meant to be a clue. I don't know. Probably can't count on that. The guy sees the world through a sheet of rose quartz, so maybe he doesn't have the best eye for faces. Scott zaps the guy and wins the fight, but he counts the guy out too soon. Scott radios to Forge that he thinks the treehouse might have been poisoned, uh, and while Scott is doing that, Orcus guy gets back up. Enhanced stamina, healing factor? I don't know. And he socks Slim right in the jaw, apparently putting Cyclops entirely out of commission. Orcus guy then grabs a Captain Krakoa getup out of its storage cabinet and puts it on. I, I guess that's what his mission was all about. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for Orcus to just create their own clone <laughs> of the suit? They have every scientist in the world, including the ones who are now monkeys, yeah. but they need to go and, and steal this one. I, I, I just think it would be easier to make a new one than to steal it. The plot oh, is bizarre, right? They have pictures of it, I'm sure, and functionally it's just a suit and later we we see that they're trying to do some like false flag stuff with it right where you know they are trying to make governments think that krakoans are attacking the u.s government but to your point right like you don't need the actual suit to do that it's not a unique artifact no at least as far as the rest of the world is concerned maybe the mutants themselves would realize hey that's not the real thing but yeah that's not the people they're trying to convince they don't have oh, a cosplayer on Orcus, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, now wearing the suit so he can't see his face even in good light, the invader drags Scott to the edge of the treehouse. He gives him a choice between burning to death, because the treehouse is now on fire, and plummeting mm-hmm. to his death, and uh, Scott chooses plummeting. So he tosses him off the edge, apparently to he his chooses, death. As far he as just doesn't say anything. I, I guess. The guy throws him. <laughs> So as the new phony Captain Koa flies off, we see the treehouse in the background completely engulfed in flame. And, you know, that whole setting never really made the impact it was probably intended to, did it? That whole treehouse. Kind of of like Mysterium. Oh, there's a whole new big thing. And it doesn't really do much. We've had some scenes there, but it was never, you know, people 20 years from now are not going to be talking about the Central Park treehouse. Not going to happen. Yeah, it's kind of goofy. Living in a treehouse, right? We could tell the point they were trying to make, you know, this group of mutants trying to make a connection to the human world while the other ones are pulling away. Thematically, yeah. we knew what they were doing and it was kind of cool, but it wasn't it wasn't exploited as well as it should have been. So the phony Captain Krakoa then pops into a meeting of the Senate Intelligence Committee, oxymoron alert. Uh, right before he gets there, the committee is saying bad things about Krakoa and talking about allying with Orcus. But before they can do much about that, Captain Krakoa, who probably wants him to ally with Orcus, shows up, punches one of them in the face, and then pulls the pins on a couple of good old-fashioned American grenades before the scene cuts away. It's unclear here whether he kills the senators or just does some damage and makes them pee their pants a little. But this is like the beginning of the PR campaign to make mutants look bad. Yes. And whatever, whatever he does makes the news, and this news is overheard in Brooklyn by none other than Steve Rogers. Hey, he was on the cover. He gets on his motorbike and heads across the Brooklyn Bridge while radioing for assistance on the um, Avengers Emergency Frequency. Seems odd to me that he announces that he's on the Avengers Emergency Frequency. I mean, if you're listening to that frequency, you you know it. But you know, we, the readers, don't know, so Steve has to say it. Oh, okay. Uh, before he can get more than about halfway across the bridge in a very photogenic location, a bit of plastic explosive hit it on the bike blows up, throwing Cap into the East River, which is full of not only pollution but also Orcus agents dressed in scuba-equipped versions of AIM beekeeper suits. Pretty cool visual. 
One of them gives Cap a good old stabbing right in the shoulder, but then Cap is saved by Rogue. Hey, she was on the cover too. Uh, and Mystique saw her run of the Hellfire Gala, so that all ties together. Mystique had borrowed Polaris's powers, so her temporary mastery of magnetism has saved the day for Cap. Not for the Orcus aim guys, though. They all blow themselves up, which is a very casual mass suicide, if you ask me. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so this is how Cap gets uh, to be part of this team, I suppose. What, what do you think? Cap interacting with the mutants? Is that going to be fun? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you, Purveyor of Positivity. I think he was all right in uh, the, the AXE Judgment Day event, right? He had a part to play. So he has, yes. he has ties to current day mutants. What I thought was interesting about the, you know, the last time I saw him interacting with mutants was the kind of uh, Emma Cap, like simmering romance thing. I, I did like that. I thought that was an interesting spin because he's all good and she's definitely not. Uh, you know, and maybe Cap as a proxy for you know the good guys because she goes for Scott. You could totally see maybe she has a type. And that, oh yeah, that's going to work out. So that was interesting. But you don't have Emma on this team, right? At least on the cover. So I'm like, okay, this is kind of boring. I guess if you're putting together an X Men ish team, you do need the goody two shoes. So maybe he's the proxy for that. But um, and obviously he's a iconic Avenger, so that makes sense. Right. But, if you're going to have a team called with Avengers in the title, you need somebody part of it who goes, oh, yeah, he's clearly an Avenger. And we're not going to yes. have Hulk. And I guess we're not going to have Tony. So Thor would be the other choice, perhaps. But he's not so Amer he's not American at all. So maybe, you know, if you want to convince America the mutants aren't that bad, hey, Captain America, right there in the name. So, I, I mean, the reason I'm not so thrilled about it is just um, there's only so many stories you can tell with Captain America that are interesting. I kind of find him somewhat boring and i haven't seen people do a great job of kind of reinvigorating him lately so that, yeah that's true i mean they could make him a werewolf again that, that'd be right. <laughs> i had those issues yeah that was that was funny or he could be a hydra you know agent i mean i guess if they play with or that angle he right could be like a hydra werewolf now we're talking that's creative if they spin the whole like you know i need you know i understand needing redemption because of that whole plot point okay maybe i get it but i just don't i imagine him just sitting around doing a whole lot of nothing and just being in pages, right? Like occasionally, because you got to show him. But I, I just don't know what he's going to contribute. Well, yeah, I, I hope he's an active part of it. We'll we'll have to wait and see. There, he's clearly, you know, going to be the one of the big characters. The you know, clearly the biggest, most known character on the title. We've got some. I don't want to say C and D listers, but kind of C and D listers. So he, he's going to be. He almost got killed by a bunch of Orcus. Aim goons, right? In this issue, so that maybe that's the other reason. I'm just like, okay, this is not that thrilling, right? Like, what is he going to really contribute? We'll have to wait and see. But in the next scene of this book, we visit the home of one Emily Preston. Are, are oh, you sorry. familiar? No, I'm not. La last thought: maybe he can go get some coffee with what's her face from Judgment Day. <laughs> oh boy, more coffee! All my coffee scenes. That's that'll make me excited for Captain. <laughs> that America. would certainly raise the, uh, the the Marvel sales in the Pacific Northwest specifically. Yes. I don't know about the rest of the country, but oh, this this book really speaks to me. He likes the dark yes. roast. Yeah. So lay it on me. Who, who's this character? Okay. So Emily Preston. This next scene kind of comes out of nowhere if you're not deeply into the Jerry Duggan experience. Uh, so. Uh, Emily Preston is from the Deadpool series that Duggan and Brian Posehn wrote back in 2013 through 2015. She was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who worked with Deadpool, but then she got killed by J zombie George Washington. 
She okay. did. It, it was a thing. It, it's that was a Deadpool book with written yeah, by yeah, Duggan and Brian Posehn. Sure. I'm not being critical. I just think it's funny. I was not expecting so that. Her mind then ended up transferred first into Deadpool's own brain, where she had her own different colored dialogue bubbles and thought bubbles, mm-hmm. and then her mind got transferred into a life model decoy version of her old body, which I think is still her current status. I think right now she's a life model decoy with the soul of a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Anyway, <laughs> she and her family are having dinner together when they are rudely interrupted by an old dude in an Orcus uniform who has brought with him two of those new Iron Man-style Sentinels that we just heard about back in Iron Man. I'm going to say this, just inter- interjection, and this is maybe a little rude for me to say, but I'm going to say it anyways because maybe somebody will laugh. If I come back and you put my brain in a life model decoy, please put me in like a slim, sexy version of myself. <laughs> Not oh. like my normal overweight self. So I'd be kind of pissed if that was my status quo and I was there. Okay. All ableism, lookism concerns, please direct directly to yes, Ruben. to me. Yeah, just make me strong, right? That if, Make me a Steve Rogers, right? Like there's no reason. Yeah, we'd all want to be our sexiest robot self. That is, yes. I'd, I'd agree with that. Now, do are we supposed to recognize the Orcus guy here with these Sentinels? He's got a gray mustache and gray hair and a... Very form-fitting uh, Orcus suit, but I yeah. I don't know if I'm supposed to know who he is. Yeah, I, it doesn't register for me. So he, this uh, unknown-to-us old guy, says to Emily, are you aware that there is a young mutant living under your roof? Now, the two kids living with Emily are her own son, Jeff, and her foster daughter, Ellie. Now, if you don't know Emily Preston, you probably don't know Ellie either. Mm-mm. Ellie also comes from that series. She is actually the daughter of one Wade Wilson, a.k.a. Deadpool. Oh, wow. And Ellie is a mutant, probably, kind of. As far as I know, this was only ever stated outright in Deadpool, Volume 6, Number 25, which is a book set in a possible, maybe alternate future. So, uh, who knows about that status, that is shown to Deadpool by Mephisto. But in that alternate Mephisto future, Ellie is a mutant. So I guess that's probably who this, this mutant is. And in that possible future, Ellie's power, by the way, is to be reborn after dying. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar, but she doesn't do the whole reboot the universe thing. She yeah, just she winds just up back. in the regular timeline in a new living body. That's the age she was when her powers first manifested. So you become uh, a teenager okay. That sucks. That's rough. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of like going back to your sexiest self. I mean, depending on how old the teenager is, please don't yeah, write to me about yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so that's the book, mostly. It's a, there's a pretty meaty bit introducing the fake Captain Krakoa and a few tidbits about the other heroes making up the new Uncanny Avengers Unity team. The real Uncanny Avengers number one will be out on August 16th, a few weeks after that Hellfire Gala one shot. So are you, uh, are you excited about Uncanny Avengers? Excitement is, is not the right word. I would definitely pick up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I would definitely pick up the book. I like Jerry Duggan for the most part and. I like the idea of a mashup team, but I just have a hard time imagining, you know, why it's going to be a great book and what fun stuff they're going to be doing. So, yeah, I, I'm curious, but um, yeah, I'm not just like sign me up, right? I actually think the best thing in this book that gets me excited is the God's preview. Okay, we'll get to that you know, in a second. at the very yeah, end, yeah. and that's only a handful of pages, and nothing really happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I do <laughs> but wonder. It's still intriguing. I mean- Uncanny Avengers is an X-Man book, but also an Avengers book, so we may need to, you know, fight it out with Jim over who's going to do the coverage. I'm thinking he'll probably let us do it. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. think he wants any part of it. <laughs> any just my guess. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm also, and as just a general Marvel fan, I'm excited after Jason Aaron's Avengers ends to get back into Avengers. So this could be a good transition for me, right? Maybe I'll be reading Avengers. It won't be the main Avengers book because that's going to be Jed McKay, right? Yeah. Well, what what I'm just saying is, you know, people always say X-Men fans live in their little X universe, right? And for the most part, that's how I interact with the Marvel universe. But um, this kind of a book could push me into reading just strictly the Avengers, right? That's just like the, the Invincible Iron Man has been, you know, they threw some mutants on the, you know, the Iron Man book and I started checking it out. So strategically, good work, Marvel. You might get me to read more of your books. All right. I'm sure they love to hear that. Uh, so there is one more little book to this new comic book day volume, uh, which is three pages teasing that upcoming Hickman book, Gods. That's Gods, all cap with periods, acronym style. We don't learn what the acronym means. Uh, all we get here is a mysterious figure, yes, another mysterious figure, chatting with Doctor Strange and asking the Doctor, are you good? Stephen muses on the meaning of good for a bit and then says, uh, yeah, I am. I'm good. Stephen then throws the question back at the guy, calling the guy Win. It's W-Y-N, Win. Win says, Stephen, my boy, who can tell the difference anymore? So, uh, yeah, that's very... Almost nihilistic, very ironic, very, oh, world-weary, which doesn't really get me so excited. I mean, I, of course, I'm still going to check out the next Hickman thing, but this, these three pages actually kind of lower my hype level uh, half a notch. Uh, that's funny. I think it's just more cinematic, and maybe it's just the art quality, too. I, let's talk about art really quick of, of this sure. of this like free comic book day issue. I feel like this is really the only page where I was like, oh, wow, that's great art. And the first part, even, I just was getting kind of angry. <laughs> like, I, I get the whole idea of like showing shadowy characters, like, who is it, right? <laughs> but the way it's portrayed, it's just weird. It's like full on portrait, right? And then they just blacken the face. I'm like, that's not a shadow, right? That's just like an artistic, intentional, it's just obscuring the features. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so, those anime you like to watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. Good job, Jim, good edit job. that out. I wasn't yes, supposed to say job, that on the mic. No. Okay. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> uh, you derailed me, man. Uh, yeah. So then there's, and it's very like over the top stylized, like the fight with, you know, Cyclops. Mm-hmm. I think before, when he first gets like punched, it looks like his like jaw is being ripped off by the guy's fist. It is and then very he gets almost Batman 66 with the close ups and the wood. Yeah. Zark. Yeah. Yeah. And so he gets up and like knocks the guy down, right? And I'm like, I think he was just completely ripped apart. And then he gets up and he beats the guy down. And then the guy gets up and, you know, again, beats him up. I can't tell like what's actual damage and what's just like weird artistic stylized stuff. So I wasn't too much of a fan of that. Yeah, I, I think that we're supposed part. to think that this mysterious guy has really high strength, enhanced strength, healing, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about that. Who do you think a mysterious figure? first mysterious figure might actually be any guesses um the only thing i could guess is maybe william striker but i would william striker okay i mean and the only thing that made me think that was like gray hair right and talking about being a human but to, i guess your point about like if cyclops doesn't seem to really be like i know who you are so it's probably not somebody they've dealt with directly in the past who do you think it is my guess and is almost certainly wrong but my first thought was uh the punisher frank castle right likes to punch people likes to, you know, use grenades. He's kind of coming out of the end of a weird series for him. So maybe by the time this continuity becomes the current continuity, he'll be, you know, brainwashed for Orcus. Who knows? Mm, Just a guess. Again, almost certainly wrong. Yeah. 
No, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. Um, I think that would be that would get me more excited. I think, strangely enough, I think that would be a pretty cool plot point. Okay, so I I don't think we need to give this basically advertisement a rating. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't get me super excited, but of course, we are still going to check out at least the beginning of that book. Any last words there? Nope. Let's go on to the next one. Okay, let's move on to our next book, which is our first Before the Fall one-shot. Now, the title page of this book says, The events of this issue take place prior to those of Immortal X-Men number 11, which may or may not be true. The timeline seems kind of a bit confused, but that's why we're talking about it first. And it is, of course, Before the Fall, Sons of X, written by Cy Spurrier, art by Phil Noto, designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Now, this book kind of sort of caps off Spurrier's Legion of X. Now, the timeline of Legion of X is currently, uh, let's say, in dispute. As in, it seems likely, or at least possible, that the last couple issues of that series took place in a timeline that no longer exists. Because maybe the branch off the Sins of Sinister and the reset. Anyway, so here we are in the restored timeline. And it seemed that events similar to, but important ways distinct from those events did happen. So I'm going to start off by reading the recap printed in this book, which might help us get our feet at least a little bit more firmly planted. Okay, this is directly from the book. Nightcrawler recently assembled a team of Legionnaires and built an HQ in the Altar, a bubble reality contained in the dreaming psyche of Legion. So that really happened. Legion and his allies fought off an attack on the Altar by Nimrod, the incredibly powerful artificial intelligence behind the anti-mute organization Orcus. The mutants won, but the fight left a connection between Cypher and Warlock severed, with Warlock in Orcus's clutches. So that really happened. And he wasn't the only one. Working with Orcus, Nightcrawler's adoptive mother, Margale Zardos, manipulated Kurt into manifesting a magical weapon called the Hope Sword, then stole it. Mother Righteous, a clone of Mr. Sinister with the power to grant wishes and powers, in exchange for gratitude and service, took an interest in Kurt, but her dubious plans to help were derailed when Sinister used clones of Moira McTaggart to create his own reality which lasted more than a thousand years, see the Sins of Sinister event. With Mother's help, mutant kind restored the timeline, but Nightcrawler is not only still in Orcus custody, he's under their control. So I think we know at least that the, the major big picture points of Legion did really happen even though some of the people who were part of those events may really not have been quite who we thought they were. Yeah. Yeah. I know this is going to drive you crazy. I think the biggest, Absolutely the biggest, crazy. <laughs> the biggest problem is a lot of the, um, like alerting the legionnaires to Nimrod's threat came through the Banshee Vox Ignis merged character. Right. Right. He's the most changed out of all this. We'll, we'll talk about him yeah. a lot, but he is certainly I- not who he was. I certainly remember that character like summoning the Legionnaires right to uh, Nightcrawler's location or like his his bachelor pad. Yeah, and using his special scream of what you call it to uh you know to to do important things. Yeah, well, I don't know I think, what happened. Yeah, so I have no idea how they would have been summoned to that location and how they would have accessed the facility in order to fight off Nimrod. But my guess yeah, is we will never find out. This is a Cy book, which takes a very Cy Spurrier view of continuity, which seems to be more thematic and hand-wavy than, you know, point by point, make it all work together like maybe an Al Ewing would have. Which is too bad, because I think it's a really cool cool idea. But I 
my sense is like whenever you're doing time travel, you got to be tight with that or it just sucks. And unfortunately, he's not being tight. So it kind of is just yeah, obnoxious. You got to play time travel one of two ways, either completely goofy and silly like Bill and Ted or really nail it down perfectly and where you go, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. That works. Okay, so in the first few pages of this book, several things are happening more or less simultaneously. Number one, we are reminded that monsterized mutants are doing bad stuff all over the world, including in my beloved home state of New Jersey. Uh, number two, it looks like Legion is having a fist fight with Nimrod, but we soon learn that this is just a simulation and a mental equivalent of the good old danger room where Legion is practicing for an expected eventual real fist fight with Nimrod. And so far, it doesn't look like he has much of a chance. He's too slow to evolve his way of thinking. Very size barrier. Uh, I don't really three. like that because he's kind of got unlimited capabilities, right? Like I would maybe have not that- compared with Nimrod. It's again, you know, like a like professional wrestling. So if you want to make Nimrod seem even better, you got to show him kicking the ass of someone we thought was real tough. I mean, I get the idea of of computers computing faster than humans can think, right? But I just would have thought that one of the one of Legion's personalities could have improved him, right? If he has the ability to change reality, couldn't he change his, his cognitive capabilities? But yep. anyway, again, thematically, it's going to be a thing at the end. So we have to see Legion not doing well now. The third thing that's happening here is that Banshee shows up on the altar uh, without his Vox Ignis alter ego. And he seems more than a little disoriented. I know the feeling, buddy. Uh, he's blindfold, who you may remember as Legion's ghostly girlfriend, diagnoses him. She says that his, quote, realities all buggered up. And again, we've all been there. Legion also does some psychic doctoring and declares that Banshee is a victim of, quote, bloody timeline alteration. I don't think he means actual bloody. He's just being British. He touches Banshee's forehead and Banshee has the flash of something like a memory. It's Mother Righteous asking him, what's it worth? But Banshee doesn't remember having that memory or anything else about the woman in that memory. So it seems that in this restored timeline, Banshee has never met... Ne- it seems that in this restored timeline, Banshee has never met Mother Righteous, has never been bonded with the spirit of Variance, knows nothing of Vox Ignis. If you remember back in Sins of Sinister, the spirit of Variance was used as a component of Mother Righteous's spell, sending information back to the main timeline. So it seems that a side effect of that is erasing Vox Ignis from the main timeline even before the Sins of Sinister branching off point. So this is the part of the issue that confused me more than anything else and had me going down like Reddit polls and Googling (laughs) and looking at blogs. So uh, I think at at some point, I'm just going to have to say, yeah, there's hand-waving here. Uh, Ruben, anything to clarify and make me feel better? No, no. I'm okay with that part. It's a mystical being, right? And who knows what happens when you consume its soul for a spell. I'm okay with that, but we got like three and a half issues that now didn't happen. Yeah. Kind yeah, that, of didn't happen. Yeah, that part's bad. I actually was like, do I need to go back and read, you know, Legion of X, which the answer is no, I'm not going to do that. But there's probably a ton of stuff that just doesn't work without <laughs> that character being in the issue. Yeah. And again, I don't think, I don't get the feeling that Cy Spurrier is going to clear this all up. I don't think he's interested in that. No, not at all. Okay. I, now I'm, I'm just going to have to learn to be okay with that. Yes. I'm, I'm not okay with that. Use your imagination. Okay. <laughs> okay. Mo- moving onward, at least. I can move onward. I, I can do that. Uh, we get the first of two similar appearing data pages. And I suspect this may turn out to be the format for all the data pages in the Before the Fall one-shots, but 
purely speculation on my part. This is a page from what's labeled an uncorrected manuscript of a book in the final stages of being edited for publication. So it's not really, it's not a first draft, but it's not quite published yet either. We can see that there's a large stack of pages, but only the top page has its text visible to us. The title of the book is Fall of the House of X. And this book has been written from perspective well in the future, even past the Hellfire Gala, because, well, our current book happens before the fall. It's right there in the title. The author of this book is redacted. If I had to guess, and I don't have to, but I'm going to anyway, I'm going to say that the most likely author is Ben Urich. What do you think, Ruben? Is this Ben Urich's book? Sure, why not? I actually, I, I hated this data page. This this style like pisses me off. <laughs> it is. It's Again, it, it kind of makes things seem like they don't matter because it's already decided, almost yeah. like a, a destiny prediction. But yeah, I, I think- I th- Go ahead. I think what irritates me the most about this is the censoring blocks, because I'm just like, I'm reading it, and I'm just like, why why is this It's censored? weird, because the censoring doesn't exist in-universe. It only exists for us, the reader. It's, it's to, to use a fancy film word, it's non-diegetic. It's only censored because we, the readers, aren't supposed to know those things. Yes. Yeah. And it almost I, seems I, to be I like making the, fun I of I love you. the data pages that are real things in their real world. And give us a sense of that reality. And this, this does the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. You nailed it, nailed it on the head. Like why it bugs me. I wasn't exactly sure why, but that's it. It just, it doesn't seem clever, right? Like when they do these reveals in a few weeks or months or whatever, it's going to be like, yeah, okay. I didn't know that because you freaking put a censorship block <laughs> yeah, over it, right? There's a like difference between me. a mystery and just not withheld information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, but there are some, some okay little hints here. We, Clearly, we, there's no secret that the mutants are going to be in for a bad time, that there is going to be a fall of the House of X, a fall of the mutants. They're going to be knocked off their perch, and really the only mystery is the specifics, how it's going to happen and what's going to be left in its aftermath. So whoever the author of this book is, again, I think it's Ben Urich because he's you know the reporter who's been on the mutant beat for a while. Uh, he, this author knows all about the sin of sinister timeline, so it's it's not a secret to whoever this is. He's describing the actions of Legion and Nightcrawler in the lead up to the fall of mutant kind, so he has some highly placed sources. By the end of the page, the author says that Legion quote received assistance from a most unexpected source and accrued a debt that would prove both fatal and rather again prove both fateful and fatal. We'll see who this unexpected source is by the end of the issue. Uh, no spoilers, but her name rhymes with Smother Brightness. Now back to the actual comic action, Blindfold, Banshee, and Legion, looking a whole lot like Dorothy, Scarecrow, and the Tin Man, make an astral visit to Mother Righteous's library, where she explains several things that we readers know already. Now she also shows Legion a highlight clip of himself in that Sinister timeline, specifically from Nightcrawler's number two. That Legion says, quote, a real leader doesn't push or pull, a real leader lifts. We know Cy Spurrier loves him some inspiration, some inspirational Zen Coens, and now we have one for this book. A real leader lifts, and of course he lifts with his legs, not his back. Uh, you, everyone learns that as they get. At least by the time they get to be my age, you learn that little fact. It's not a bad thought. I feel like it's. I'm sure he read that in some random leadership book, but. Uh... I'm okay with it. It's not. You, you kind of see him feeling very pleased with himself as he writes it down. Which, yes, yeah, it makes me feel a little icky. Uh, well, anyway, Mother Righteous volunteers to help our guys uh, fix their whole monsterized mutant problem, and all she wants in return is 
a little gratitude. Legion, who seems a bit confused, just tells her, well, then, thanks. Which I'm sure definitely won't come back to bite him in his astral ass about uh, 13 pages from now. <laughs> Not that I'm counting. We now get a second manuscript page. Same format, same redactions. This one mostly about Nightcrawler. Again, it tells us things we already know about his mom working with Orcus, the monsterizing spell. It also makes it more clear than it had been that the monsterized Nightcrawler was sent out by Orcus to be seen doing bad stuff all over the globe as part of their negative PR campaign against the mutants. So very much in parallel with Captain Krakoa. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it says. A lot of redactions, but that seems to be the gist. We also learn when he's not out there doing dirty deeds dirt cheaply, Nightcrawler is being kept on the orchestration station called The Bloom, which is a place we first visited X-Men number 18 back in January. This page also drops more hints about Mother Righteous being a puller of various hidden strings regarding Legion of Nightcrawler going way back, which is not all that surprising. So, anything new or exciting you found on this manuscript page? Again, it's just showing that, yes, yeah, somebody in the future knows everything that happened. Doesn't tell us much we didn't know already. Okay, now it's time to raid the Bloom. Long story short, it's successful. Mother Righteous defeats Nimrod, which should be super weighty. It doesn't doesn't feel very weighty here, but this is freaking Nimrod. Uh, she does it by accessing the soul of Warlock trapped within him. Via that Warlock soul, she makes Nimrod feel feelings, which he doesn't like one bit. Again, pretty relatable. Nimrod orders all Orcus forces to withdraw and then teleports away himself. Meanwhile, Legion Company find Nightcrawler, currently in his kind of big horned form, but not fully monstrous like we saw him in Sinister Sinister, and our heroes are about to leave themselves when they're attacked by Margali Zardos, who does not want her adopted son taken away from her. Margali cuts David's head off with a hope sword that was crafted from Kurt's soul. Which, again, seems like it should be a big deal, but he's still okay, because he's Legion, and I guess he can do that. He carries his own head under his arm, Headless Horseman style. Margali is then also defeated by Mother Righteous, which she can do because Margali had received her Winding Way power-up via the help of Mother Righteous, and Margali thanked her for her help, which gives Mother Righteous power over her. Still not crazy about the thematic implications of this view of gratitude, but that's, again, on the list of things I just need to get over. Mother Righteous sucks Margali right up into one of her glowy reliquary balls. So she's like trapped in a, you know, uh, the Phantom Zone, I guess, more or less. So our heroes and Mother Righteous get beamed back down to Earth, and now they have the Hope Sword with them. Back on Earth, they're in the Savage Land. And between panels, Mother Righteous has done something that breaks the monsterizing spell that Margali has cast. Which, again, seems super quick and easy to make a major plot point just no longer exist. She proves that her cure has worked by killing Dr. Nemesis, who is then immediately resurrected and no longer has that overgrown brain fungus thing going on. Juggernaut and a few others are then sent off to happily murder the rest of the monsterized mutants to death so that they too can be resurrected in a normal state. Which, I thought we had gotten past that whole, oh, just Casually death murder, is fine, resurrect. just kill him off. Yeah. Wasn't that a big part of an earlier Cy Spurrier thing? <laughs> the whole missing parts of your lives mean that something. That it shouldn't be casually and it turned into, trashed. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, this feels like a very quick wrap-up. I, I don't know that Cy Spurrier thought he had more issues to work with, but he's not writing this like it was planned to stop here. It's writing like a, 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 quick, a quick finish. Now, there's nothing quick or easy about what happens next. Kurt wants Mother Righteous to give up the Hope Sword so that Nightcrawler can have that hopeful part of his soul back. She claims Finder's Keepers and then uses Legion's thanks given to her, 13 pages earlier, 
to start to suck his soul into her reliquary as well. But I guess this was a cunning trap set by Legion and Blindfold? Question mark? Uh, Blindfold has emptied out the altar within David's mind and has also done some kind of mind reading on Mother Righteous herself. On a cue of strike the spark, that's, that's their catchphrase, that's their, their, their keyword. The Legionnaires attack Mother Righteous, most conveniently distracting her to dropping the Hope Sword, the one thing they want, which Legion grabs and as his body fades away into nothingness, he tosses that sword to Nightcrawler. An enraged Mother Righteous kills Banshee, Pixie, and Lost. Oh, by the way, Pixie and Lost are also in this book. Uh, and then she also kills Nightcrawler. I mean, they're going to have to kill him anyway to undo his whole monster thing. But we get a bit about she has the power of faith, but he says he has the power of hope. Not hope of the mutant, hope the abstract concept. Again, another Cy Spurrier phrase that he thinks is super you know, deep that I don't find so deep. Now, all those opposing Mother Righteous are dead. But I guess in the bigger picture, they've won and she's lost. Nightcrawler died while holding the Hope Sword and it disappeared with him. So I guess that means he gets his whole soul back. Is that, are those how the rules work? And, and Ruben, can you tell me what happened to Legion in this, this scene? I honestly don't know. I think he decided to ascend to a higher plane, just like he did in the Sins of Sinister World. Maybe. He, and it looked like he was getting absorbed into the reliquary. I think but he then was. she doesn't know where he is, so she yes. doesn't have him. Correct. And the Ascension, I think, thing is a good escape plan, except we have in this issue, you know, hey, you did that in the Sins of Sister timeline, and then whoever's sitting in the Dominion actually took you out, so you didn't really escape anything. So is that what happens here, right? Like, if, assuming that's what his plan is, is get off the plane of existence so she can't capture me. Yeah, and in, in the next scene, erased. Professor X, his dad, says that he can't find David either, not on Earth, and also not on Mars, which he was kind of in two places at once, sitting on top of a volcano. Yeah. We mostly forgot about, but is referenced here. He went to uh, go kick it with Kid Omega. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I guess. Maybe he'll come back with a, a long beard, too. Yes. So the rest of the crew of this book is resurrected back in Krakoa, not Legion, just the rest of them. Uh blindfold we don't see where she is either she was already kind of a ghostly spirit so i figure she's off wherever david is but okay uh oh by the way since everyone who was there in the savage land with mother righteous died there without their memories being backed up no one on krakoa in, including those characters remembers what mother righteous did there kind of went all full out villain which is awful convenient for her as she can go back to pretending to be their friend on krakoa but the upshot is that Kurt is free of his monster problem, and Banshee feels much better now. Also, a bunch of stuff has been erased from his backup, so I guess we're just sweeping that whole Vox Ignis situation under the rug, probably never going to talk about it again. <sighs> Kurt is feeling uneasy, though, and we get a final scene of Kurt and Cyclops overlooking Kurt's Krakoan house from afar, a scene that is a, a cool, and Ruben, you pointed this out in Slack, uh, a direct visual echo of one in 2020's X-Men number seven, back when Hickman was writing the book. So that was a cool little visual reference. I like that. Now, Kurt knows that Orcus used him to commit several murders. We're told three prime ministers, one chancellor, and two royal heirs. Uh, it wasn't really his fault. And that's a theme we're going to come back to, how people influenced by you know evil organizations probably shouldn't feel too guilty about what their bodies did. Uh, but it doesn't assuage his feelings either about himself or about the larger Krakoan project, which he has completely lost faith in, or maybe lost hope in, because he's the hope guy. Uh, he says that Krakoa is not merely teetering on some invisible precipice, but already falling. 
we've got a lot of uses of that word at issue, right? fall, falling, falls, and, and clearly that's not a coincidence. So Kurt and Scott go into Kurt's house, and we finally get to see the painting painted by Weaponless Zen, whose mutant power is to paint the truth. And this is a painting that she made back in Legion of X number five. And I know, Ruben, you've been hot to see this painting ever since then. You finally get to see it. So, Ruben, tell the nice people what this about this painting. Yeah. I don't know why you're throwing this to me other than it's just hilarious to describe. So you basically got a naked Kurt spread eagle making an x and yeah, he seems to be missing some important body parts we, we, yes. we've been told he's been doing a lot no, of man, fornicating the there in his house it's but i don't truth. know how it's the truth she only paints the truth <laughs> maybe he can bamf that part <laughs> in and out of uh, reality this is why he leaves krakoa right he's like oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> all the people are gonna see this picture of me there goes my my yeah, uh, was a street cred yep yeah anyways yeah so basically the None of that's interesting to me. The interesting bit is the little weird baby nightcrawler thing up on the top right corner. And we also saw that when he was in the bar scene talking with Banshee. Yeah, are like are they the called rafters. Bamps? I think at some point, little mini nightcrawler demon guys, babe, like mutant babies, were called Bamps. So we saw one actually hanging out in the foreground that I don't know if anyone else could see it but us in that bar. And now we see one painted. Yeah, he's. We've seen this before with mutants kind of semi-crucified, again, Spurrier likes his religious imagery, on a big old X. And I think it's also meaningful that we see the Hope Sword kind of stabbed sideways through Nightcrawler's torso in the painting. That seems to be important. Because in the actual, well, actual as in in the, the panel of the actual walking around Nightcrawler, he takes the Hope Sword out of his own chest. So I guess that's now a permanent thing he can do, just like uh, magic could do with her big old yeah. soul sword, pixie with her dagger. That's that's just a thing that that Nightcrawler does now. So yeah, he uh, he says that he's got to leave, he's got to go. He has no more faith or hope in Krakoa, which he's been through some stuff, no doubt. But his role here has always been the hope god, the carrier of the spark. So I don't know really why he feels right now he has to leave. Other than editorial decided he has to go play Spider Man for a while. Just doesn't feel motivated organic. Go ahead, Ruben. Tell me if I'm wrong. He's he's got a lot of shame. (laughs) It's all about the painting. (laughs) I mean, you even have you even have the scene with Cyclops looking at it, right? This was this was weaponless sin, wasn't it? Speaking of weaponless, she paints with the truth, quote unquote. Isn't that her (laughs) Oh well. I didn't think we were going to get quite this prurient at the end I of the might, issue, I might move. I might move if somebody painted a picture of me, Spread Eagle, in my neighborhood. Uh, and everybody thought that it was accurate. of the uh, Pacific Northwest. <laughs> you, you, you know what to do. So, yeah, Kurt bamps away to go become Spider-Man, and, and that's where the book ends. And Yeah, this this book didn't do a whole lot for me. Leans pretty hard into those tropes of Sizeburger's writing that just never really resonated with me, and it erases important bits of the story, or it finishes up bits of the story in a hand-wavy way. Box Ignis never happened. The monsterizing spell is gone. Uh, Legion and the whole altar co- concept, those are gone. We never got back to Forget-Me-Not. I wanted to get back to Forget-Me-Not. I knew you did. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, but yeah, it, it feels like Spurrier had to wrap up a whole bunch of stuff really quickly, which he's kind of done before in this series, right? He's kind of, every time it kind of stops and comes into a new 
version of itself, he has to kind of make some plot points go away. Now, to give him some credit, he does effectively convey the sense that things are starting to fall apart here, that the mutants are headed for an actual fall. And that's that's a big part of the job where, you know, the title has before the fall, it's the first of those one shots. He is making me feel ever more like, yeah, things are going to go bad. So that's good. Uh, for, but for me, though, the real figurative high point and literal bright side of the book is the art. It's Phil Noto. I know not everybody loves Phil Noto. I, I know Gabe in the uh, Slack chat was casting some aspersions on one page taken out of context there, but I've always loved Noto's painterly style. I loved it on cable. I love it now. It's a style that's unmistakable, right? You see a page of Phil Noto art, you know who it is, but in a way that still makes the characters look like themselves, not all distorted like certain DC artists that uh, we might we might uh, name. But they look they look right, and they also look like Phil Noto drew them, which is a cool trick. I had to call out one page I particularly like. It'd be page three, which is a full page splash that shows Nimrod having defeated David in the imaginary danger room. And Nimrod, to me, has never looked more intimidating. There's uh, something Noto does with the shade and that gives Nimrod a very striking sense of volume. He, he takes up space, which sounds awful silly when I say it out loud like that, but on the page, it's, it's very pleasing to me. Uh, so in total, with a story I didn't much care for and a visual style, I very much did. Uh, and giving credit for doing what Before the Fall is supposed to do, I'm going to give Sons of X number one a six point. Eight out of ten. Ruben, over to you. Yeah. Wait, you described me as purveyor of positivity, so I bet you're expecting me to be very high on this. Nine point eight? Nine point what now? <laughs> no, I was just gonna go with a seven. And That's actually seven. Okay. Yeah, and actually talking with you about it, I'm kind of a little bit more down. It was not <laughs> as good as my I job thought. here. Yes. So uh, I lost the battle there. I, I think six eight is probably a good spot for this. I for me the most interesting bit about this is is the question of like Who's the Banff, quote unquote? Actually, the coloring kind of bugs me, right? I wish it was more like pinkish red because I really do think this is, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm more invested in who is Spider, Spider Nightcrawler than anyone else. But I thought the Banff was going to be Cardinal, right? And then. Ah, right. Yeah. Because there's, there's kind of a conversation about, you know, Banshee and Nightcrawler in the bar after all the effects and they're talking about Legion and they're like, hey, did he leave you anything? And we see the, the Banff up in the rafters right that is intriguing and no one actually mentions it in dialogue or in text it's only in two little places we see it i'm going to say really existing in the bar and then existing in the painting so whether that's an actual big thing going forward or just uh phil nodal felt like drawing it it's hard to say so yeah in that scene he's saying no he didn't leave me anything but we see the bamf right so it's like yes he did leave you something he left you this little creature to take care of yeah, and I'm not really sure of their status in current uh, continuity. They were a thing in, in various places and times, but we're seeing them now. I, I hope I hope it's not just dropped. I hope we get some explanation in uh, in Spider Nightcrawler. Do, do you know what they were? I don't remember. I should have looked that up. Yeah, is that uh, some whatever. part of like his teleporting accesses some other universe, mm -hmm. and they were related to that? And maybe they came through. Interesting, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So sadly for me, I think Nightcrawler leaving Krakoa, probably he is Spider Nightcrawler, which I was hoping that wasn't what the outcome was going to be, but I guess it is. And it's going to be so. super weird. He's going to be Spider-Man with a hope sword. <laughs> it doesn't make I, I, a lot of sense. It's so crazy. I am super interested in reading that first issue 
And again, I might completely hate that issue, but I, I got to know how they're going to make that happen. Yeah. I just need to know. Yeah. And here we, I guess, last comment, we see Cyclops here. He's wearing his, you know, current day Cyclops outfits. Um, again, weirded out by why he was in the 90s one. That is, you know, probably significantly in the future from this moment. So something happens in between or the artist just likes to draw that outfit. Hard to say. Okay, moving on to our last book of the episode. Uh, this is Immortal X-Men number 11, A Hard Rain, that's R-E-I-G-N Rain, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Wernick, colors by David Curiel, letters by Clayton Cowell, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, we are running kind of long here, so I'm going to try and probably fail to speed this up a little bit. Uh, I I know I get I get uh, into some cul-de-sacs, but we'll see what we can do. This issue does have Gillen picking up right where he left off in Sins of Sinister Dominion, an issue whose last portion was essentially Immortal X-Men number 10 and a half. Every issue of Immortal is narrated by one quiet council member, and our lucky narrator this time is Storm, who's also right there in the cover, sitting in a tree, uh, not doing any K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Storm and Rasputin... Sinister's chimerical creations set back in the far future of a now-dead timeline are standing alone in the quiet council chamber. Not quite alone, for Koa in his tree form is present there, as is good old Doug Ramsey. And uh, Doug here is shown as still having his techno-organic warlock arm, which I think must be an art error as warlock isn't around right now, unless the timeline is even more confused than I think. Now, I, I happen to get that tidbit to give credit from the wonderful House to Astonish blog, which I encourage listeners to go check out for themselves for all sorts of cool stuff. When I get confused, which happens a lot, that is the first place I look to try to try to get deconfused. Uh, so why are Storm and Rasputin here? Well, they're going to completely undo the last dramatic scene from Sins of Sinister Dominion. They're going to bring the exiled Quiet Council Quartet, that's Professor X, Emma, Hope, and Exodus, back up from the pit. Uh, no mention is made as to whether they saw Sabretooth down there or were surprised not to see him down there more evidence that those books aren't really in communication with these books. Now, Forge has very quickly found a way, that, that is his deal, to make a machine to fix the problem of sinister genetics. We get some actually pretty decent techno babble about sinister's DNA being stored in a sub-dimensional loop stitched into everyone else's regular DNA. The details don't really matter, though. There's a, a bing and a bang and a boom, and now they're all fixed. Probably. Uh, we know Sinister is a, a tricksy one, and so these four will still be watched closely, mostly by Rasputin, and put on restricted duty. No resurrection work for Charlie, and no votes in the council for any of them. This will all be kept secret from the larger Roman population, which is an echo of a lot of former secrets that the council have kept, you know, about uh, Moira and, well, mostly about Moira, and that didn't go so well, but I'm sure it'll work out just fine this time. Uh, this is supposed to be happening after Sons of X that we just talked about, but there's no mention of Kurt also having, oh, I didn't mention this last time, Kurt gave up his council vote at the end of that issue. That's important, should have said that. Uh, he gave his vote to Storm to use until someone else can be elected in his place, which if that had just happened before this, you'd think that taking away even more council members would have been mentioned somewhere in this book. So, I don't know if these books aren't talking to each other or if the timeline's confused or if I'm confused, but maybe it's happened, but Storm just doesn't know yet. <clears throat> Pausing for a sip of tea. 
Next, Storm and her new pal Rasputin show the restored council members the movie version of Sins of Sinister. How long before that storyline comes to the MCU? It is it is nice and convenient that now everybody basically knows, well, everybody on the council knows kind of everything that happened in that series we just read. And I guess Ben Eric could have talked to one of these people. Uh, maybe got he got a, a bootleg off of a BitTorrent. Who knows? Not that I would know how that works. <laughs> now, naturally, none of these people who see the movie take the news of their alternate future selves very well. Uh, again, just like Nightcrawler, I would say this wasn't really their fault. This is you know, Mr. Sinister, who he, he's sinister, it's right there in the name. He took over their personalities. Yes, it had bits of their personality too, but I don't think they should be blaming themselves for this or each other. Now, speaking of blaming each other, the Hope and Exodus are immediately on the outs. And by on the outs, I mean Hope is trying to murder him to death for turning on her in, in Sinister Sinister. That's a sweet, that's just a weird little like issue. Because again, it's like, as you say, right? Like, this is me when I've been possessed by Mr. Sinister. Right. It's uh, <laughs> it's like, you aren't you when you're hungry. You have a Snickers bar. You aren't you when you're possessed by the DNA of Mr. Sinister. Have have whatever uh, you know, techno fix this is. But yeah, but that she's being not said, any that, of that being said, I just try to think through it. And I'm like, okay, people certainly get pissed off when people act crazy on under the influence of something, right? Is that a good analogy? I mean, I know that's kind of what we're supposed to think in the book, but I, I don't. But it seems so a little different, it. right? It's like not like a choice. It wasn't like they chose to to um, have their DNA corrupted, right? So yeah, it, it's just a little weird. I could see I could see them being like, "Hey, this makes me feel a little uncomfortable." Like that would have been an appropriate level of response, right? A little like I need a little time. I need hurts. a little. I need a little distance. Like give me a little space. All that like would have made sense, but the like I'm going to kick your ass stuff. Is <laughs> and a it goes bizarre. on for several pages. But I, I think I think mostly they kind of need an action scene in this book, and we get one other little action scene. But I, I think that was mostly why it's here. I also just generally, you know, let's talk about Storm and like kind of the narration of her being like critical. And there's an interesting point of like her being critical of Charles and you know his behavior because you know when she was recruited. To the X-Men at that time, she was kind of like the weather goddess in Africa. And he was like, hey, you're not a goddess. Like, stop pretending to be one. And here she's like, I'm bailing you out and you're acting like a god. And you don't seem to have any remorse for what you did. She's very critical of him, right? But yeah, there's an interesting dynamic here where she is kind of being her royal kind of self-righteous self. But she gets knocked down a couple pegs later on, which I, I actually kind of enjoyed. Yes, I enjoyed it a great deal because I was like, God, this character's really obnoxious. <laughs> and Similar not every character is allowed to knock Storm down a peg, but uh, yes. you know, spoiler, it's going to be Emma, and I guess Emma is allowed to do it. Yes. And similar to like the Hope Exodus thing, I'm like, yeah, you're critical, but like they were sort of subverted, right? Like it's not like I, – I think the whole point is she's trying to say like, hey, your, your machinations and games have led to like the fall of this you know you basically led to the sinister timeline you need to like stop playing games and just be on the up and up but again i'm like it's not exactly what happened right it was sinister doing his stuff yeah she's kind of you know the the large and in charge here she's the one taking control and she is she is feeling very full of herself and very much like she should be the school marm telling people what they did wrong now storm uh doesn't trust destiny because Destiny knew about Sinister's Sinister schemes and didn't tell anybody. Also because of 
destinies, duplicities there in Sins of Sinister that Storm now knows about. You know, the whole you know, backstabbing, hiding the lab thing. Destiny tries to defend herself as having just acted in be- everyone's best interest as best she could, but we know that she's really mostly motivated by trying to keep Mystique alive as long as possible. So yeah. she's not really telling the truth either, which I think that's an okay dynamic is seeing how she is also defending herself and making some good points. But we know that in reality, the big issue is something that she is not going to say out loud. Yeah. I want to say this. Um, Destiny was not a character that I loved. I just thought she was kind of whatever, but... Kind of a plot device. Yeah. Yeah. But lately, I've really been enjoying it. I I don't know. Maybe it's just the the age I'm at where I appreciate some of like the absurdity here. But it she's very um, self centered and smug, <laughs> and it's like perfect. The mask the mask works so well, right? Like it's it does perfect mask if you're going to be smug, you know. And her odd. power is kind of like we were talking about time travel before, and that yeah. it's exactly how you're going to play it. It's going to change from writer to writer and issue to issue. So it, it could get kind of out of control, powerful, but it, it also can do some cool stuff. So speaking of Mystique, which we kind of were before our uh, little aside there, Mystique is visited by Mother Righteous, who is becoming you know the star character in all of Krakoa. I, I don't know if she – does she have a house there or she just lives in the astral plane and she wanders <laughs> she around? She has the She's astral plane there. and she can appear wherever she wants. She's yeah. always on Krakoa, it seems. Yeah. Uh, again, exactly when this happens relative to what we saw in Sons of X – is kind of hazy. Maybe she's already done that, but no one here knows about it because all the memories got wiped. Uh, we need another action scene here. So uh, Mystique and Mother Righteous fight for a bit, but really Mother Righteous is dropping off a voice memo from Sins of Sinister Destiny. Remember, Mother Righteous was given a library full of secrets from that timeline by her own future possible alternate self. This secret is from Immoral Number 3, which is a message that Destiny had sent to Mr. Sinister in that timeline. We don't hear the entire message in this issue, but if Mystique listens to it, and I think she's going to, uh, she'll know all about Destiny's true motives, including that she's just trying to keep her Mystique alive, and she'll also know some things about Sinister trying to become a Dominion. It seems like Mother Righteous is trying to insert some distrust between Mystique and Destiny, although- And that they talked about an alliance as well. Right. And uh, yeah, so we know that in the Hellfire Gala, Mystique and Destiny seem to be still together, but... Yeah, so I read this issue before I read the Free Comic Book Day stuff, and the Free Comic Book Day stuff, I think, really like deflates this scene, because I thought this was great when I read it without knowing that they're still together. I'm like, oh man, like trouble in paradise, right? Like she's going to be pissed. We saw very little of them in the Free Comic Book Day. We saw they were physically together at the gala, and they ran off together, but... There could be a whole lot going on between them that just didn't come up in that book. That's, that's, that's possible. So the next major thing that happens is that Lodos Logos, remember him, the, the poet guy, uh, he comes to bring Storm back to Mars. She is a busy lady. She There's a there's kind of a clumsy moment where Storm, when saying goodbye to Professor X, says, don't you want to talk about Max? And by Max, she means Eric. And by Eric, she means Magneto. And this is a weird time to bring that up, don't you think? I mean, I suppose that in in universe, it hasn't been all that long since Magneto died in Judgment Day, although for us that was six months ago. Uh, so I, this is clearly put there for readers, of course, because that's why everything's in the book. Uh, it's trying to foreshadow something about Professor X reacting to Magneto's death. I think. Yeah, it was a bizarre little 
<laughs> it, it does Thanks. seem it comes out of nowhere. Now, uh, before Storm leaves, Emma gives her a bit of a lecture on how Storm isn't really in a position to be as judgmental as she's being. I mean, after all, and this is a great point, in Sins of Sinister, <clears throat> in Sins of Sinister, the Sinisterized Mutants have an excuse. They were Sinisterized by Mr. Sinister. But was Storm was her regular self. She never died, at least until the whole magic spell thing, but forget about that. Uh, it's a thousand years down the road. And for hundred years? Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, Storm was herself for those five years when she didn't even notice that everyone else on the council was completely compromised. Yes. And that's all on her. That is a damn good yes. point by Emma. It's an extremely good point. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that I applauded Gillen for doing that, right? Because I'm getting really annoyed at Storm and the way it's been depicted here. She's very heroic, right? And she, she has really good criticisms and Yes, they need to stop playing their games, right? But it's sort of like, yeah, you didn't realize that there was something off with us for freaking five years. And and yeah, this knocks Storm down a peg. But yeah. in doing so, I think it makes her so much more interesting as a character. I don't need her to be the perfect goddess. That's boring to me. I, I'm interested in the kind of mistakes that she makes because of who she is and because of the positions that she's put in. It's It's interesting to see her screw up sometimes. Reminder, she's not a goddess and what she's going to do going forward, right? She's a very cool character. I mean, I, I love that she was in charge of the X-Men for a while. Absolutely. And I certainly love her in X-Men Red. And I do appreciate that they're pointing out to her like she really is ineffective splitting her attention between Krakow and um, Mars. Mars, Rocco, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and that has been a theme of like like both this book and X-Men Red, which makes sense. So it does look like that theme is going to be in the forefront even more in the next couple issues. So Storm does then leave for Mars through one of these gates, and uh, as she does so, we get a brief exchange between Mother Righteous, still hanging around Krakoa, and Sebastian Shaw. Now, privately here, between the two of them, Shaw acknowledges that uh, in Dominion, he was just pretending to not recognize her. They, they, they've really had their dealings before. That part was not erased. Shaw tells Mother Righteous now that he fully expects Krakoa to go kablooey in the near future, and he's already positioning himself to benefit from that. Now, Mother Righteous says she'll help him in exchange for Shaw proposing a few motions before the now greatly reduced Quiet Council. And that is very interesting to me, too. Shaw is... We haven't seen a whole lot from Shaw for a while, and I'm no, curious to knocked, see him again. Yeah, he got knocked down pretty hard, right? And he's been definitely right. ever, ever since uh, subordinate Kitty you know, found out about what he did and, and beat the snot out of him. Yeah, and we had that fun issue in, in Immortal where he was kind of tough and interesting, and that that was kind of the last time we saw him as a threat. But it's great to see he's just been kind of biding his time, and yeah, he's not an idiot. Like I, I did really appreciate that they did the callback of like, yeah, I investigated this person. Like I'm the one person that knows who this is, knows that they're not a friend of Krakoa, but also I'm Sebastian Shaw, and I don't give a damn, right? Like I'm just going to use that information for my own benefit, and. That means burning Krakoa, but getting a lot of profit out of it. Let's do it. So I, I thought that was cool. Great stuff. Yep. So now we have a time jump to, quote, days later. Now, by the way, Kieran Gillen, in, uh, I think in his newsletter, has said that the next issue of X-Men Red takes place in this gap between these two pages during those days later. So this last scene here takes place after X-Men Red number 11. So after whatever happens there on Mars... Storm is feeling even more overstretched by all her responsibilities. 
she needs someone on Krakoa to be her eyes, ears, and voice when she's not there. Someone to cast her vote when she's not there. And I, I guess also Nightcrawler's vote, since he gave his yes. vote to her, yeah. again, like depending on timing. Triple vote. And so who's going to serve as Storm's most trusted friend on Krakoa? None other than good old Colossus. That is nice. So the start of what I hope is a nice another connection between books, this time between Immortal and X-Force, with Colossus's whole being controlled by his evil brother storyline playing into, into both books. Now, a- another thing going on here is the Quiet Council is, I mean, more than decimated. I- I'm one of those pedants who likes to point out that decimated means you only kill a tenth of the people. So <laughs> here we've got a whole lot more than a tenth are gone. So who's left on the Quiet Council? On the traditional heroic side, we have Storm, who's there part-time. We have Kitty Pride, uh, and we have Colossus, and we know his problems. On the traditional villainous side, we have Sebastian Shaw, who's actively working on selling out Krakoa, and we have Destiny and Mystique, and we know that they're going to be bugging out at the Hellfire Gala, so not looking great for the whole mutant government. Listeners should feel free to draw any parallels they like with real-world government. Our <laughs> podcast will be staying clear of those discussions. But do you are you enjoying the political machinations here? Yeah, I mean, I I always get really excited when we have that plot device. And it is a thing Gillen likes, right? In Eternals, uh, that's how Thanos got to be, is it Prime Eternal? Whatever yeah. whatever the, the title yeah, was. The Prime Eternal. By playing yeah. games with who's voting for who and who's who's not going to be at the election. So it kind of, it, it almost feels like a little bit of a rerun from him, but uh, with different characters, with different motives. So I'm okay seeing it again. An interesting, like, other dynamic of this, right, is how much character assassination work went into Beast. But he was the one that was, like, suspicious of Peter. <laughs> Do you remember that whole time he was, like, interrogating him? I'm like, dude, was kind of right. That's true. Right. And now here he is, like, Russian Peter with his, you know, compromise. Uh, how did, how did that timeline and- work? Was 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 uh, Colossus already under the control of Chronicler when that happened? I don't know. No, I think it was like slightly before. Oh, well. So he was just a little early. Premature yeah. anti-Peterism. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I kind of feel bad. Like poor Colossus, right? He's kind of next in line to be character assassination like target. But it's also a good. It's a good device, right? He does look so sinister, right? Normally he looks so heroic. I'd say the art in that last panel is pretty good. Yeah. The, the hands in the foreground from Storm, those... Those look odd. They look yeah. kind of like feet. Yeah. I don't know why they're there, right? You don't really need it, but other than to let them know they're talking, but the Colossus kind of looking and being like, of course you can rely on me. Yeah. I was or, like, oh, no, Other than you those can't. hands, that is definitely the coolest panel from, from this book. Yeah. And uh, I was so- like, hey, this, this proves Emma's point. Like, you're kind of a dope storm. I'm sorry. I know it everybody is. loves it you, is. but yeah. <laughs> once again, you don't know... You don't know somebody's acting weird. This is exactly the problem that led to Sinister Sinister Timeline. Which is clearly on purpose and does make me very happy. Yeah. So, uh, to to wrap up this long episode, uh, not short, but here here we are. Uh, Art-wise, I'm starting to run out of things to say about Lucas Warneck's art. I love his dynamic layouts, especially action stuff. Still not crazy about the way he tends to draw faces. He has this one sneering expression that he draws identically on, like, hope and Exodus and Storm. And once I noticed that, I'm like, hey, he, he just cloned that same face on three different people, and I didn't even like it the first time. But yeah. Again, this is me nitpicking things. Overall, it, it does a, a great job of telling the story. Fight stuff looks great. Her Cohen organic technology looks fantastic. Just 
some of his character facial expression stuff doesn't doesn't work so well for me. Story. I am so bummed that Xavier and company are out of the pit already. Uh, after you signed off last week, Ruben, I don't know if you listened to the end of the podcast. I did. I was speculating that, oh, how long are they going to be there? They might be there through the Hellfire Gala. They could be there for, uh, they're already out. Two pages. Yeah. Two pages there in the pit. <laughs> Makes me feel dumb. Yeah, I think that was definitely a big swerve. It's sort of like they wrote the story and then they were told, no, you, we need them for something else. But it undercuts the end of that that uh, whole event. I kind of feel in retrospect like I enjoy the event slightly less because right away it's just, oh, no, that didn't happen. Or it did happen, but it doesn't really matter. I w- yeah, I would challenge you on that, though. I would say, what are the real ramifications of them being gone, right? They don't have votes or influence, and that still is the status quo. And we do get an interesting additional dynamic here, which is, you know, Forge says, you know, we don't really know do we actually scrub your DNA or not. Like, we think we, we got the one thing we identified, but we don't know if we got everything. That's interesting, right? You can certainly have it come up, you know. It, it is interesting, but shouldn't that apply to everyone on Krakoa? At least everyone who's ever been resurrected, not just these four? Does everyone uh, only, on the island only, go through this procedure? They they say that. Only from the point when Hope was dead. Remember, before that, her, her power was like, scrubbing the dna and that was why i said okay. take her yeah, out okay so and they do fine, say fine, like fine. they touch on that they say like you know from this point forward anyone we resurrect even though you're not involved in the process because for some reason hope is still involved they're like you know we have to monitor them and make sure that you know they're not compromised and they have to go through the forge cleaning process okay so uh Big picture gillen uses this issue to a lot of housekeeping a lot of setup uh, a lot of cleanup showing us the post-Sins of Sinister state of Krakoa, which is necessary work, but not all that thrilling. Uh, Again, I like what he's doing with Storm. The rest of it kind of, there's some scenes that just plot along and I want to flip through and and get to the next thing. It's not bad, just not anywhere near the heights that this title has, has shown us in most of its prior issues. I'd like to be more excited, feeling a little bit let down. I'm very much open to the next issue, restoring my faith that, oh yeah, Gillen has a plan. This was all part of it. But for right now, I am at a 7 out of 10. Oh, sad. Yeah, I'm a lot higher on this. This is another 8 for me. I'm intrigued. I can Uh, see why you you are. I still like the character dynamics. I do think there's some interesting kind of area, like, interesting directions this could go. I do have a sense of dread as to, like, what's going to happen. And uh, when you run the numbers on who's left on the council, I'm like, man, they're it doesn't surprise me that Mother Righteous is like, just propose any crazy idea <laughs> because we could probably get it passed at this point, right? Because yeah. it's basically who, Kitty who knows versus. what Peter's going to vote for. It could be anything. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's interesting. And I'm curious to see, like, is this going to change um, Aurora's perspective on you know leadership and how's that going to you know play into the X-Men Red storyline? Yes. Next week is when X-Men Red comes out. So we will be looking forward to that. So. Let's get into next week. Next week, there's a lot of stuff coming out, and I'm not exactly sure which we're going to talk about, but the issues we will definitely talk about are X-Men Red number 11, Storm doing her thing back on Mars in between pages of Immortal, and also Wolverine number 33, back to the whole Wolverine versus uh, Beast thing with all those Beast clones and Wolverine clones. Also coming out next week are Rogue and Gambit number three, eh, Invincible <laughs> Iron Man number six, and maybe we'll have Ruben do another Iron Man minute. 
I will read both of those things and do the, the five-second summary, so don't have to read those. And I will read Captain Marvel number 49, which I think wraps up the Brood storyline and might have some more crossover stuff with uh, Rogue and some other of our characters. So I don't know that anything there is going to matter so much, but if it does, I will let you know. But until then, folks, uh, Ruben, what is it that we see at the end of every episode? Yeah, go read more X-Men comics. Bye-bye.